Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central and welcoming you to our 90-minute broadcast, Prophecy Today Weekend. So glad you could join us. Hope you can give us the entire 90 minutes because our six broadcast partners are standing by to give us the details, great understanding of all of these current events that are happening around the world, seemingly setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. By the way, I'm saying I'm at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga. I won't say that next Saturday. We're going to be in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We head out on Tuesday of this upcoming week. We're going to be driving up to Milwaukee. We'll do a VCY That's the network that covers our broadcast. We're going to go up there for their 2020 rally, and that's going to be taking place at the Brookside Baptist Church. They were going to put it in the convention center, but unable to do that because of the coronavirus. But the church is prepared for that type of thing. The rally is Saturday night, September the 19th. The doors open at 5 o'clock. The rally begins at 6 p.m., And if you want more information, go to the website of VCY America. It's vcyamerica.org. And there's one other announcement before I get to our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Today is the 61st anniversary of a marriage between Jimmy and Judy DeYoung. I cannot believe that precious lady has kept me for these 61 years, and she's such a sweetheart, I wish her a very happy anniversary on this special day. Please excuse me for bragging about my marriage, but I think when you stay together 61 years, that was the Lord's plan, and I believe we ought to brag about it. Well, having said that, now let's get to business as it relates to our broadcast partners. Ken Timmerman is going to cover the geopolitical activities for us. Yesterday on 9-11, Ken, uh, the president and the candidate to be president, Vice President Joe Biden, both went to the sites of the terrible, disastrous, unbelievably horrific attack on the United States that took place some 19 years ago. I do believe, Ken, we should start off by talking about that horrific attack, and how we should honor those who did give their lives in that attack. Well, absolutely, Jimmy. And every year on September 11th, I stop and say a prayer for the dead, for the people that I knew who died, and for the people whose families I've been trying to help since then in their uh, efforts to find justice against at least some of the perpetrators. And I'm talking about the Islamic Republic of Iran. I've been engaged in the lawsuit. Uh, on behalf of 9-11 families against Iran. We've been pretty successful in the U.S. courts. We haven't yet recovered money internationally, but it is a pursuit of justice. The president gave a profoundly moving speech uh, in Shanksville. That's where Flight 89, United Flight 89, went down in a field thanks to the 40 passengers and uh, some of the crew members on board who stormed, who took a vote, as the president said, they did that most American thing. They took a vote, and then they stormed the cabin, knowing that possibly certain death lay uh, ahead of them. Uh, it was a very, very moving speech. As you say, Vice President Biden was uh, in New York first, where he bumped into Vice President Pence briefly, and then headed down to Shanksville, but he and the president did not cross paths. Uh, this is not a time for partisan politics, and the president was pretty clear about that, and 
And to his credit, uh, former Vice President Biden suspended his campaign ads on September 11th as well. So that at least is one bit of comedy, which was, to me, refreshing to see. And we do honor all of those who gave their life in that horrific incident taking place 19 years ago. Well, you mentioned Iran. Let's talk about Iran. They are now bragging about the fact that all American soil is now within range of any Iranian bomb. And they're even talking about putting something in the sky above the United States that could cause an EMP. What do we know about this announcement by Iran? Well, Jimmy, I personally found this quite astonishing and rewarding in a way to hear that the Iranian government in a government-run news agency said openly what you and I have been talking about here in these broadcasts for several years now, which is the Iranian government's intention uh, and their tests to launch an electromagnetic pulse nuclear weapon, to explode a nuclear weapon high in the atmosphere over the United States. And in this particular news item, they said it would kill 90% of the American people, boasting of that. So now they're saying openly what you and I have been talking about previously based on access to either intelligence information or access to uh, statements by Iranian military leaders. Now the political leadership is saying this as well. The second thing that was extraordinarily significant, I think, in that statement, they also confirmed what weapons experts here in the West have been saying for many, many years, and that is when you have the ability to launch, launch a satellite into orbit, which the Iranians recently demonstrated, you have the ability to launch an ICBM. And the Iranians just said that. They said openly, we've now launched a satellite into orbit, which means that we can hit with our rockets, with our missiles, any city in the United States. Well, you know, for years you've heard people saying, oh, Iran's space program is purely, purely a civilian program. This coming from Iran apologists, groups here in the United States who are Iran apologists, and from, you know, their foreign minister uh, and lackeys. But now they're saying quite openly that the the fact that they launched a satellite into space shows that they can now hit the continental unit in the United States and any city in it with one of their missiles. This is pretty extraordinary, and it's a big, big escalation. Absolutely, it certain is. And that's the Iranian threat right here on the United States. But meanwhile, back in the Persian Gulf, I hear a report coming out of there that Iran is conducting new military exercises at the Strait of Hormuz, which would shut down all travel out of the Persian Gulf to the rest of the world, shipping-wise. What do you know? Well, the Iranians have been conducting almost constant military exercises, naval exercises in particular, because they don't have much of an army. Uh, But their navy has been growing by leaps and bounds. They've been especially focusing on uh, missile forces, amphibious forces, and these small patrol boats that can swarm a U.S aircraft carrier. In this particular set of exercises, they have built another replica of a U.S. aircraft carrier, which they've towed into the Persian Gulf. They will be using that for target practice. I can pretty much predict for you, I think reliably, that we're going to see a video of that, at least broadcast by the Iranians quite exultantly, if they do succeed in sinking their own wooden replica of a U.S. aircraft carrier. I tell you, if they can't sink that, I don't know what they can think. 
But uh, nevertheless, they're doing this almost constantly, and their goal is to harass uh, the U.S. Navy and to deter us from uh, bringing aircraft carriers into the Persian Gulf. Now, they've not been very successful at that, but they're trying to show, again, that they control the Strait of Hormuz. This is a very narrow choke point. People don't realize the actual sea lanes through the Strait of Hormuz are about you know, one mile wide each way. So it's not a wide waterway. Uh, and they're trying to show that they can control the Strait of Hormuz, through which about 25% of the world's oil transits every day. Ken, you and I often talk about Turkey tie up Erdogan, understand Turkey and Iran are seeking a strong foundation for a partnership together. Well, that's going to be a double threat if that all comes together. Well, that's right. And, and again, their leaders have been talking recently. Uh, these have been virtual conversations because of COVID. Otherwise, Erdogan would have gone to Tehran or the President Rouhani would have gone to uh, Ankara, uh, as they have many, many times in the past. So we're seeing an acceleration of this Iran-Turkey alliance. They still have some, some, uh, you know, some rough points to hammer out. So here's the key. Remember, Turkey is a Sunni power. Iran is a Shiite power. Hamas is a Sunni terrorist organization. Hezbollah is a Shiite terrorist organization. Hamas controlled by Turkey. Hezbollah controlled by Iran. So you see the leaders of Iran and Turkey getting together, and at the same time, at virtually the same time this past week, you saw the leaders of their proxy organizations, Hamas and Hezbollah, getting together for talks in Beirut, Lebanon, where they pledge to jointly work against Israel and uh, possibly the United Arab Emirates, which has signed a peace agreement or signed you know, to a peace agreement with Israel to renew relations. By the way, that deal is going to be signed next week on September 15th at the White House in Washington. Uh, we should all be prepared for Hamas, Hezbollah, Iranian, and Turkish action of some form to try to disrupt that peace deal signature ceremony. That is going to be a very important ceremony taking place there at the White House in Washington, D.C. Very quickly, if you will, we've only got about 30 seconds. Ken, talk to me about Turkey. Ultimately, they want to revive the old Ottoman Empire, but they really need Egypt. If they do that, they want to attack Egypt and bring them under Turkish control as well. Correct. And so what they're doing is trying to undermine the government of General al-Sisi, who is against the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. Remember, he took over uh, from the Muslim Brotherhood. So Turkey is now trying to shore up the Brotherhood. They're trying to encircle al-Sisi uh, from Libya to his west and by Hamas to his east and Turkey along in the Mediterranean Ocean. So this is a clear aim to weaken uh, Egypt. Again, this is in the early stages, Jimmy, so let's, we're going to have to keep our eyes on this. But that is the aim of Erdogan, is to undermine the secular government of Egypt and to bring back the Muslim Brotherhood under Turkish domination. And in addition to that, all the geographical location of the old Roman Empire to accomplish his ultimate goal. And that's why we bring Ken Timmerman to this broadcast table on a weekly basis to give us the insight. You heard him say several times, mainstream media not reporting this, but we've been doing it for a long time. That's key as Ken and I get together for our conversations. Ken, thank you so very much, my good friend. Talk again next week. Always my pleasure, Jimmy. Thank you, and God bless. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, David Dolan's standing by. David has his Middle East news update for us. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. 
Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. I want to remind you that I do have a website. It's prophecytoday.com. This is a full-service website. It will assist you in your study of Bible prophecy. For example, I have a prophecy bookstore with a number of materials that will help you as you study through the prophetic passages of God's Word. I have a number of books, DVD documentaries, and audio series on the subject of Bible prophecy. I have a prophecy Q&A section, and then I list the top 10 news stories on a daily basis. These are news stories that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And I will give you a prophetic perspective on those news stories. That website that you should bookmark is prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And as I said in the first part of the broadcast, we're going to be headed out to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This VCYM America rally is going to take place at the Brookside Baptist Church, and that'll be on Saturday the 19th. Doors open at 5, beginning the meeting at 6 o'clock. If you need more information, go to vcyamerica.org. That's their address on the internet, all the details right there. Well, as promised, we're going to David Dolan. David has a Middle East news update for us. And David, I would imagine that most of Israel is going to be focused on Tuesday on Washington, D.C., and in particular the White House, where the peace treaty between Israel and the United Arab Emirates will be signed, and Donald Trump will sign it as well. That's going to be a historic meeting and historic signing of a peace treaty, the first one in some 26 years. Well, it is, and a delegation is leaving Israel on Monday, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu heading that. He was talking about flying in a private jet with his wife and two sons, to avoid being with the delegation because of the massive explosion of uh, COVID cases in Israel, over 4,000 a day now being reported, and a full lockdown is beginning just before the high holy days. So, frankly, Jimmy, most people are focused more on that at the moment than they are on the peace process. But nevertheless, they're very happy that Bahrain coming on board the the, uh, train and opening relations with Israel. 
A delegation was supposed to arrive from the UAE in Israel right after the signing ceremony at the White House to sign some deals. But because of the COVID lockdown, that may be postponed, they're now saying. But certainly it's a a great achievement and something that the Israelis have looked for. President Trump hinted that Saudi Arabia may come on board that as well. We've talked about that the past few weeks, that they're more reluctant because of being the guardians of the Islamic holy sites, as it were, in in Mecca and Medina. But at the very least, they're not opposing the deal. Only Iran and Turkey still strongly speaking against it. But the Israeli public very happy that uh, this is happening. And we could be in the middle of a war. There is a war going on against the virus, but at least there's not, you know, a war with some of these Arab countries and uh, moving more and more in the direction of normalizing relations. And that is definitely a good thing. Peace as it relates to the UAE and Israel. But meanwhile, Iran, you said, is opposed, of course, to this signing of this agreement. They are making the announcement that America and Israeli soil is now within the range of an Iranian bomb, possibly from a military satellite. What do you know? Well, that's a worry that uh, the U.S. and Israel have shared for many years now. Um, There's indications that other countries, North Korea possibly, China definitely, uh, Russia probably have the capability of uh, launching uh, EMP attacks, attacks upon uh, America's electric grid or Israel's electric grid from space. Now Iran is hinting that it may be able to do the same thing. Well, we don't know. Iran says a lot of things, and about half of them are true. It turns out in the end, half are exaggerations. But we do know that on the ground, they continue to uh, beef up their forces in Syria. We had an Israeli air strike early Friday morning near the uh, city of Aleppo in the outskirts against several sites said to be housing some Iranian uh, militia presence uh, and uh, some missiles, some rockets aimed at Israel. We had other activity. It's the third airstrike, by the way, attributed to Israel this month so far, Jimmy, in Syria. We had an Israeli drone shot down near the Golan Heights. During the week as well, the Israelis said it was destroyed and, and by probably Syria and uh, that it uh, didn't compromise any security because it was destroyed, basically. But So there's a low-level war going on, uh, definitely uh, continuing, and uh, whether that will suddenly erupt into a full war or Iran has uh, weapons of mass destruction, uh, we just don't know. But we know they're continuing their nuclear weapons program, and we know they're enriching uranium, and we know that their hostility uh, towards Israel and the United States remains extremely strong. And President Trump spoke about that this week as well. They are an enemy, and uh, they have chosen to be, and Israel's watching them very, very closely. David, you mentioned that Iran is enriching uranium. The International Atomic Energy Agency reported this week they have about 10 times what any agreement would allow them to have. And the IAEA also said that Iran could have a nuclear weapon in some 90 days. Well, let's change the focus just a bit. The Arab League has rejected the Palestinian demand to condemn Israel and the UAE deal. 
Now, that's an interesting development from the Arab League. It's saying that the Arab nations are not so on the side of the Palestinians after all. Well, Jimmy, the two most powerful Arab nations are Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Well, Egypt, of course, was the first country to make peace with Israel in the late 1970s, so a long, long time ago. And even though that's been a very cold peace, uh, there's not much tourism between the two countries and this sort of thing. There's not much business between the two. Yet there is an official peace, and Egypt does help to tamp down the trouble in the Gaza Strip from time to time to get Hamas to stop firing rockets, that sort of thing. And Saudi Arabia, of course, we just discussed, not officially at peace with Israel, but in reality doing deals, allowing Israeli flights now to take place over Saudi territory on their way to the UAE, and uh, soon Bahrain, it looks like, as well. So um, as long as those two countries are basically in the peace mode, the rest of the Arab League will be that way mostly as well. The Palestinians are losing this battle, Jimmy. They should have uh, stuck with the Oslo Peace Accords that they signed in 1993 on the White House lawn with Israel. They should have abided by those. They should not have thrown them out in 2000. Yasser Arafat should not have ordered his forces to shoot at Israeli soldiers. But all that happened, and the peace uh, froze. And even though there's still a little bit of on-the-ground security cooperation, basically there's hostility from the Palestinians. They've chosen to dig in their heels. And the other Arabs, uh, for the most part, as I said last week, are just sick and tired of it, especially younger Arabs. They want to go on with life. They want their economies to flourish. They want their cell phones and, you know, the things that uh, everybody wants around the world. And they just don't see the point of this endless war with the Jewish state, supported by the superpower of the United States, with close friends in Europe and elsewhere around the world, even China and Russia, with pretty good relationships with Israel. So they are alone on Gilligan's Island, as it were, and uh, the Arabs are abandoning their cause. Very interesting development there. You mentioned earlier in our conversation, David, about the coronavirus, almost a war as it relates to Israel, with them trying to combat and keep both the Israelis and the Palestinians from being infected by this coronavirus. Meanwhile, the Israeli National Security Council discussing closing down the Temple Mount for all worshipers, which would include the Palestinians and the Jews. This quite interesting development with the upcoming Jewish Holy Days uh, beginning the beginning of next week. So that's an interesting development as well, isn't it? Well, it is, Jimmy. And again, Israel was uh, suffering under 2,000 cases a day until recent weeks, and suddenly it uh, doubled to over 4,000 and quite a few people hospitalized. And so it's a total lockdown, at least a three-week lockdown that the government has ordered, um, although that has to be approved by the cabinet on Sunday, tomorrow. But um, that is what's being recommended by the top officials. They're going to ban uh, prayer gatherings to it. 10 people at the most, 
Uh, they're going to, as you say, close down all sorts of sites, malls and, and businesses, basically, but also holy sites, including the Temple Mount. Uh, unprecedented, really. Of course, tourism remains completely flat in the midst of all of this. So it's a real situation that they're dealing with. And Jimmy, unlike the surge in April, it's mostly from 15 to 21, 22-year-old people that are getting infected and many of them becoming ill. And that's both school age and in the military. And they're real concerned about the number of military personnel that are being infected and passing it along. So they're going to try this. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu going to Washington in the midst of that. But as I said, that's the thing most people are focused on. How are they going to have another round of holy days without gatherings and prayer meetings and all this very, very difficult time indeed for Israel? But of course, cases surging in Europe and many other parts of the world as well. So at least Israel is not alone in this fight. Yes, it's a major fight worldwide, and it's happening especially in Israel with the upcoming Holy Days. David, thank you so much for your insight, your input on this Middle East news update. Appreciate it. We'll talk again next week, buddy. And have a good meeting that you're going to, and God bless. Thank you, sir. Winky Madad's up next here on Prophecy Today. We'll talk about Rosh Hashanah and the Jewish Feast. All ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and we welcome you back to the second half hour of the three half hour segments of Prophecy Today. This weekend broadcast is for the purpose of going to our broadcast partners around the world to give us insight and analysis of the headlines we're reading and are hearing through radio and television, helping you to have what we believe would be the details behind all of this information, something that the mainstream media is not covering. So glad to have you, and we move now into this second segment, starting off with a conversation with Winky Madad. You know, he's one of our longtime broadcasters, great, great friend of ours here on Prophecy Today. He lives in a place called Shiloh, which is the center part of the state of Israel, very historic, very biblical as well. And speaking of biblical, Winky, we're looking forward next Friday evening at sundown begins the three fall feast, starting off with Rosh Hashanah and our Feast of Trumpets. 
And then about 10 days later, Yom Kippur, five days after that, the Feast of Tabernacles, you're talking almost about a month worth of Jewish feast days upcoming for the Jewish people. And because of that, I wanted to have a conversation. I've been looking at the Internet, especially the locations there like Roots 7, which is an Orthodox Jewish website giving the news. I read an advertisement that was talking about people in Israel encouraging Christians and others around the world to get involved in planting trees, especially as it approaches Rosh Hashanah and especially fruit trees. Why is this connected to Rosh Hashanah, the planting of trees? Well, Jimmy, the tradition is that our Hebrew calendar, while technically the year begins on Rosh Hashanah, we have different periods when the fruit trees, once planted, can be eaten from only after three years. In other words, our ancient tradition is that fruit trees are not eaten from until a three-year period is passed. But we have different times when that three years begins. So our holidays like Rosh Hashanah and Passover, Pesach, are just, in addition to their spiritual, religious importance, they also have agricultural connection as to what time of the year you plant trees, and so it's better to get them in before a certain period, otherwise you lose a year. So we have different layers, if I can say it, of observance in our religion, which many people don't understand, and therefore some people even try to claim we're only a religious community without any national or or geographical uh, connection to the land of Israel, and they really do not know what they're talking about, because all of our holidays, in addition to relationship between man and man, man and God, uh, man and the divinity, it's also between man and the land. The land is very important in Judaism, and so uh, that's why some you'll be seeing some of this uh, advertisement or information about planting trees. Winky, you've also reminded me often on this broadcast that it is a prophecy program. In other words, we look at biblical prophecy and we try to understand if we're living in the times referred to by the ancient Jewish prophets. And I was reading from a rabbi's post on that Eretz 7 website. I was seeing that he was talking about Ezekiel 36 where the prophet is actually talking to the land of Israel. Verses 6 to 11 talks about when you come back into the land, and that's the times, I believe, in which we are living, the Jews back in the land. But he said, I will multiply the fruit trees, and I will multiply man on the land with the fruit trees. And he brought forward that the fruit trees are basically an evidence of the glory of God. I thought that was a great connection. Actually, the first chief rabbi of Israel... Abraham Isaac Cook, who was appointed back in 1920, died in 1935. He quotes from the Talmud that the end of times becomes apparent when you see the land coming back to life and fruit trees giving fruit, whether it's date trees, whether it's fruit trees, whether it's vineyards and of all the sort. You'll find all these quotes in the Bible because we believe that if we are good, And if we have reached a specific time in world history, the land of Israel once again flourish and flower 
and prove that the Jewish people have returned. And I think, and as you know, uh, there are many Christians who come here to help us with the uh, harvesting of the grapes, and they also want to be part of the uh, of this miracle that is recreated due to the prophets seeing that this would take place. You know, it is exciting to think about these thoughts. I did read that article about, I think the number is 50 Christians were allowed to come into the land. They had to quarantine for the two weeks, but then they went to the farmers up in the area of Samaria and helped them to harvest their crop, their grape crops. Boy, that was a very interesting connection that you made in talking to us about this special time. Well, the three upcoming Jewish feasts, Rosh Hashanah, which is also the Feast of Trumpets. I want you to tell me why they're the same, but also then Yom Kippur, a very solemn day, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, a joyous time of celebration. Well, Jimmy, the Hebrew month of Tishrei, which uh, usually falls between September and October uh, in the regular Gregorian calendar, is, if I can borrow a phrase, a heavy period. It is one in which we basically feel that the whole year starts off in a set. What will happen? Are we taking account of ourselves, what we did right and what we did wrong during the previous year? And uh, it's not just a party of a New Year's. As you said, we blow the trumpet, what we call the shofar, on the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, and we take accounting of ourselves. The commandment to do repentance is very much in the, in the air, even as I speak, because in the previous days before Rosh Hashanah, there are special prayers, what we call slichot, requests for forgiveness, are said leading up to it. We take our time and we are very serious about our spiritual preparations and, and, and getting into it. And as you said, after Rosh Hashanah, 10 days later, there's the fast day, 25 hours of fasting. Of course, it'll be difficult this year with all the corona. We don't know exactly what the protocols will be for being inside synagogues, but I can tell you here in Shiloh, uh, outdoor prayer services and quorums will be held. And then at the end of the month, the last uh, eight days, there's the Feast of the Tabernacles, where we enter into booths that we set up in order to indicate that we're retreating from the world. We go into a little hut with tree branches up on top. It's not very strong uh, as a symbolic commitment to God, that we trust Him, that He will protect us. And we hope that in our observances of this type of month of Tishrei, the various different holidays, the next coming year will be the best we can have. I want to tell you, Winky, you've given us some great information. For the Jewish people, these holidays upcoming are very important holidays, and for we as Christians, we can study about this and see how God is working even today among the Jewish people after having been given these Jewish feasts way back in the book of Leviticus and chapter 23. So appreciate it, Winky. We'll try to get you along the way during the time. I know there's some solemn days and some days of repentance there, but if we can, we'll try to talk to you in the next couple of weeks during the holy days. But thank you so very much for your time spent with us helping to teach us about these Jewish holy days. Appreciate it, my good friend. Haksameyak. Chag Sameach, a happy holiday. Jimmy, thank you very much for having me on. Goodbye to you and our listeners.
very important conversation with Wiki Madad focusing on Rosh Hashanah and the Fall Jewish Feast. Steve Herzig, upcoming momentarily, he'll give us more insight into Rosh Hashanah and the Jewish Feast as well. Steve is the National Director of Friends of Israel. Stay tuned for that conversation. But right now, we go to a key region of the world uh, that will set Bible prophecy in place as the European Union ultimately becomes the revived Roman Empire, according to the book of Daniel, and that would be chapter 7. The man who covers the European Union for us, John Rood. John, let me get underway with many of the reports I want you to share with us and give us insight into. European Union is warning Serbia and Kosovo because they made and developed a relationship, agreed to recognize the Jewish state of Israel and move their embassies into Jerusalem. EU is saying, hey, we were going to consider you being a part of the membership of the EU. We're questioning that thought right now. What's the details behind this? Yes, indeed, it's the uh, EU possibility of considering Serbia and Kosovo for membership that has begun this long, long process. They started negotiations in the European Union in 2011, and there hasn't been much progress. Incidentally, it's very similar with Turkey. The European Union has had negotiations for membership for decades, and finally Turkey uh, became very, very frustrated. So Serbia and Kosovo have been aligning more with the United States, in, and actually President Trump had made the announcement that uh, Belgrade was moving its embassy to Jerusalem and that there would be a mutual recognition, as you mentioned, and the same thing that the Pristina would eventually uh, move their embassy as well. Well, now the EU is, is doing all of this backpedaling, saying that as a possible candidate, then you need to respect our platform and our position. And they make it very, very clear there's no EU member state with an embassy in Jerusalem. So this is something where the EU has put them off, and yet they don't want to lose the influence. Serbia and Kosovo knows they can't go completely ahead with a full EU cooperation. Looks like the EU playing a little hardball there. But uh, speaking of Turkey, Tayyip Erdogan playing some hardball. He's warning Greece and France of a possible war and saying, come on, let's get with it. What do we know about this intensifying of the conflict between Turkey, Greece, and France? Actually, we have in our report, we've already mentioned that there's an escalation and it appears to be continuing. President Erdogan in a speech said no country is going to stand in Turkey's way in the eastern Mediterranean. Very harsh language. He called Greece... France, North Africa, and uh, Gulf nations, greedy and all separately, greedy and incompetent leaders. She said that Turkey does not have an army, it is an army. And then the most shocking, as, as you've mentioned, it says, we say to our enemies, bring it on. Well, as NATO countries, it would seem, if Turkey is referring to NATO countries, Greece and France particularly as enemies, then we have an extremely serious situation. And we'll stay on top of that situation with John Rood to continue to watch this conflict. 
seems like uh, there's a lot of activity going on in the Middle East and as it relates between the European Union and the Middle East and the members there. Meanwhile, China is playing up to the EU. They say the envoy from Beijing into the European Union says that China and Europe face a chance that could shape the world's future. Now, I know what the Bible says about those two different entities. What do you say they are talking about today? Yes, we see there is a cooperation that China desperately desires in Europe. And uh, eventually, of course, these are going to be two uh, very strong world forces in the end-day scenario. And it would make sense that they would have some type of strong stand going into that situation. So the uh, China has sent their most senior diplomats on back-to-back tours into Europe, and they often would be in uh, Brussels as well and would have special weeks of cooperation. But uh, China has been slow on their promises. The EU uh, doesn't quite know how to, to take them because their promises are, are not necessarily coming to fruition, and it looks like a little bit too, too little too late. Uh, China is working very hard with the corona situation and the human rights situation that uh, they need to have some credibility. And so now they have made the statement that uh, the choice for the EU, in a sense, to follow China would be something that could shape the world's future. I'll deal with that when I take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. But you can understand, if you've listened to the report from John, uh, that his report is key each and every week as we get together here on Prophecy Today to understand how Bible prophecy is being set in place to be fulfilled, possibly in the very near future. John, thank you for your report. Appreciate it. We'll talk again next week. Thank you very much. A key report each and every week from John Rood His European Union update, he talks about the political activities there in the EU. And when I take a look at the book, I give my prophetic perspective of how the political activities of the EU are setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. Well, we're going to bring now to our broadcast table Steve Herzig, It's approaching the time of the fall Jewish feast days. There are three of them. We'll talk about all three with Steve in a moment. Steve is the national director of Friends of Israel, and he is a man who is not only a speaker, a traveler, a director, which would mean he's an administrator, but he writes books. He's written two of them, in fact, one of them entitled Jewish Culture and Customs, and then part two of Jewish Culture and Customs. Not too original on the titles, but great material in the books. You can either come to my website, prophecytoday.com. We have these available. Or go to the Friends of Israel website, foi.org, and go to the bookstore there and make your purchase. Steve, let me say, Shuna Tuva, Happy New Year to you in advance. Actually, Shuna Tuva, Rosh Hashanah, does not begin until next Friday evening, but we needed the opportunity to be able to talk about it. And let me talk to you about the Jewish feast days, which are holy to the Jewish people. 
They are God-given and very special for the Jewish people, aren't they? Yes, they are, Jimmy, and happy holidays to you, 5,781. That alone is something we can talk about. But yes, the fall feasts are extremely important. Rosh Hashanah kicks off the civil new year. It's significant. Jewish people are thinking about their past year, and oh, what a year it's been, huh, Jimmy? And then they'll be thinking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and of course, Tabernacle. So Yes, this is a very important time on the Jewish calendar. Well, let's do exactly what you have suggested. Tell us why we look at the new year for the Jewish people as 5781. Why not 2020? Well, you know, Jimmy, contained in the Bible, in in Judaism, talking about the Jewish scriptures, there are so many things that we're able to observe from them and then learn. 5,781 is the Jewish view of how old the earth is. That's significant because most Jewish people don't believe in a young earth. Yet, when they go to worship on Rosh Hashanah, they will acknowledge that, yes, it's the year 5781. So Judaism, biblical Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, both teach that the earth is young. Secondly, it's the civil new year, scripturally, and uh, shofars are involved, and the sounding of the shofar, which is a really important and significant biblical thing. And so you have uh, uh, the blowing of the shofar, which reminds the Jewish people of basically two things, Jimmy. The first is that we should be offering our lives to God. That's number one. And number two, it talks about a Messiah, a future Messiah. It's a kind of call to get your life together. Uh, the shofar sounds, it's kind of slap in the face, and, and wait a minute, we have to take inventory of our life because Messiah is soon coming. Again, that's an orthodox, biblical view where liberal Jewish people will acknowledge just by their presence at a Rosh Hashanah service. I hope you understand what I mean. There's this stress between the biblical and traditional Jewish teaching, and the practice of Jewish people and their actual beliefs. It's a really interesting tension that, to me, has always been worth pursuing because it's worth a conversation, and Jewish people will talk about it. Yes, a great way to start a conversation with your Jewish friends. By the way, the first day of the seventh month is Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah, of course, meaning the chief of the year or the new year. But it's also the day, according to Leviticus chapter 23, the giving of the Jewish feasts from God to the Jewish people for the Feast of Trumpets. Why are these two put together? You were talking about blowing the shofar. Is that the, the reason they come together on the same day? Blowing the shofar takes place at other instances, especially new month or new moon kind of thing. But Yes, this is the Feast of Trumpets. It's a memorial. God has used it as a memorial. It really doesn't say a lot in the text in Leviticus, just a few lines. And, Jimmy, for most of your listeners, Leviticus is not the book that they do uh, their devotions on. They might read through. I always say Leviticus is the foundation to the book of Hebrews. But I trust they'll look at this passage, because all seven of these convocations are exactly as you say. They are convocations given by God to the Jewish people. 
And therefore, we should, as believers, we should pay attention to them. Yes, the blowing of the shofar is always a call to people, a call to gather for worship, a call by the military. It's a call to proceed. When you read the book of Numbers, they blew the shofar, and the people got up and moved forward. So it's a, it's a pay-attention kind of thing. And, boy, during this year, Jimmy, we ought to be paying attention. Amen. Amen. There's no other word you can say except amen. We should be paying attention. He is indeed the Lord God himself trying to get our attention. Well, there are three fall feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, and then 10 days later, Yom Kippur, and then finally, five days after that, the Feast of Tabernacles. There's a celebration at the beginning, celebration at the end, and a very solemn day on Yom Kippur. So these are three key days, and that trumpet sound calls the Jews to repentance, does it not, in preparation for Yom Kippur? You summarized it really well, Jimmy. The first is Rosh Hashanah. Yes, a greeting is, may your name be inscribed in the Book of Life. What a wonderful greeting. What a wonderful thing that is. There's a concern. Hey, will you? Will your name be in the Book of Life, or will it be in the Book of Judgment? A looking forward to what kind of year next year is going to be. And so at Rosh Hashanah, People are analyzing their life, and I know you and I have talked in the past. You've actually had Jewish people come and and apologize to you for something they uh, might not have meant to do, but they realize they did, and they want to make it up. They want to repent and ask forgiveness. That goes on at Rosh Hashanah. Then 10 days later, these 10 days of awe, as people begin to analyze what they might have done wrong, the sins that they have committed, they repent of them, because Yom Kippur is not, may your name be inscribed in the Book of Life, your name will be sealed in one of those books, the Book of Judgment or the Book of Life, and everyone wants to be sealed in the Book of Life. And so on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they will fast, and they will pray, and they will give charity, which, by the way, comes from a Talmudic story where the temple is burning in 70 A.D., and the rabbi and a student is there, and the student says to the rabbi, Rabbi, our people are fleeing, our temple is done, what are we going to do? We won't have sacrifices. And the rabbi says, from now on, we'll fast, we'll pray, and we'll give charity. Well, those things are all good, but they're not in the Bible to atone for sins. And so the Day of Atonement is a day that we as believers can sit, look at and say, Boy, have I, have I trusted in the only path, the only way to be saved? And then Five days later, the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when God sets up his kingdom. The Messiah has come, and the kingdom is here. For Jewish people, Tabernacles is a reminder of his faithfulness to them as they were journeying in the, in the desert and wandered around. Now, a 10-day journey turned out to be 40 years long, but eventually they go into the Promised Land. And, and we as Christians say, well, first we have to repent. Then we understand that Jesus paid the price for us. And then we understand that we're absent from the body or raptured, and then we're present with the Lord Jesus and co-rulers with him, as you will, being, being servants of his during the thousand-year rule where the kingdom will be an amazing thousand years. So these three feasts are really a culmination of the program of God, and it's, it's an exciting time. It's a real exciting time, Jimmy. And as we approach the day of the beginning of the fall feast on next Friday at sundown, I want Christians to understand we bring 
Steve Herzig to this broadcast table to help teach us about the Jewish feast, but the feast are for the Jewish people. One final question for you. Always ask this one, Steve. Tell us how we could best, from a practical perspective, approach our Jewish friends during these feast days and tell them and relate to them about Jesus. Jimmy, these particular days are so unique where people are, many people are afraid, they're concerned. The best way for those of us who have Jewish friends, people we're concerned about, is number one, give them a call, ask them how they are, especially for those who might be shut in. Number two, if you can possibly give something to them, a basket, a fruit basket of some kind, a card, a greeting to them to encourage them and let them know that you're praying for them and concerned about them, especially during these difficult days. You know, there's nothing better uh, at a time when so many people are lonely, feeling depressed. Many Jewish people, they'll be worshiping on Zoom instead of in the synagogue. No person-to-person contact. It's, it's great that we can find ways to connect with them, even if it's phone call or by mail, email, and let them know that we care, especially as they're about to celebrate their New Year, their Day of Atonement, and for Tabernacles as well. Well, that's very, very, very practical, Steve. Appreciate that insight. For those of us who would like to relate to our Jewish friends, the person of Jesus Christ, start the very loving way. That's the best way to make that approach. Steve, thank you so very much, my good friend. Always talking to you at the time of the Jewish feast, and we'll wait for the next ones upcoming in the spring Probably that'll be the time when we get back together again. But thank you, my good friend, and Chak Have a blessed holy days as well. Jimmy, thanks so much. Always great to be with you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking with David James. That's the last half hour of our 90-minute broadcast. David will have a topic that Christians need to be concerned about. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome back to Prophecy Today. This is the last half hour of the three half hours I ask you to give us so my broadcast partners could give you details behind current events happening in our world. Thank you so very much for being able to do that, staying with us the 90 minutes. By the way, I want to remind you, we go on the road on Tuesday. I leave for Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're going into Milwaukee, the VCY rally I will be speaking at. They would normally hold that at their city conference center, but because of the coronavirus, it will be held at the Brookside Baptist Church. That's on Saturday, September the 19th. Doors open at 5. The meeting will begin at 6 p.m. If you want more information, go to their website, vcyamerica.org. And before today is over, please go to my website and answer my poll question. The poll question is, Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31, reveals to us that on the Jewish feast day, the Feast of Trumpets, on that feast day will be the day that Jesus returns to the earth at his second coming. That said, do you then believe that the Feast of Trumpets is not the day for the fulfillment of the rapture? That's the poll question on my website, 
prophecytoday.com. We now bring to these microphones David James. David and I have a weekly conversation. We focus on an issue that would be very important for the body of Christ, for the church to understand from a biblical perspective. We have this conversation so you can learn along at the same time we are learning and endeavoring to give you great biblical information while helping us to have our daily walk with the Lord. David, earlier in the program, I was discussing the fall Jewish feast with a couple of our broadcast partners, Winky Madad and Steve Herzig. And this week, even as we were going to put that on the air, we were able to receive a question from one of our listeners connected with this topic. Yeah, that's right. His question was this, will Rosh Hashanah be the day of the rapture in some year in the future? Then he says the basis for his question is that the four spring feasts have been fulfilled by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And of course, those four feasts are Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost. And then finally, he proposes that the rapture would fulfill Rosh Hashanah with Yom Kippur corresponding to the 70th week, and then Jesus returns to usher in the Millennial Kingdom to fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, it's an interesting question that I've had before, and I know you've had it before as well, but we would believe that the Bible shows that Jesus' second coming will be on the Feast of Trumpets, and so that will be the fulfillment, not the rapture. And if the rapture were to fulfill that feast, then it can't happen at any moment. And in fact, there would be 364 days of every year that the rapture couldn't take place. However, we know the Bible teaches is the rapture is an at-any-moment event. And another problem is that we know the second coming happens at the end of Daniel's 70th week, and the covenant of Daniel 9.27 goes into effect seven years earlier. And so there needs to be time for the Antichrist to rise from obscurity to a position of power so he can affirm and enforce that treaty. So the 70th week can't begin with the rapture. Now, that doesn't mean the rapture can't happen on the Feast of Trumpets, but it doesn't have to, and it's not the fulfillment. And praise the Lord for that. I don't want to have to wait any time for the rapture to take place because it could happen at any time, even today, even before this broadcast is over. Great answer. Great question from our broadcast listener. Well, this week, a Christianity Today article uh, that reported on a recent survey concerning what Americans believe about biblical doctrine came out. And one of the concerns, I read through it, you read through it, one of the concerns that we have is the direction of evangelicalism. Talk to us about that. Sure. Well, Jimmy, those who have listened to our weekly discussion for a long time know we try to keep up with important cultural and theological issues facing believers today. And part of this involves watching the periodic surveys that assess the beliefs of Americans in general. And these results of these surveys are usually broken down into comparisons between various demographic groups. Now, this particular survey, which was done from March 10th to the 18th of this year, involved 
3,000 respondents. We'll get into some of the details concerning the results of this survey in a few minutes, but for now, I'll just say that the theological movement within evangelicalism is something we've been tracking together, you and I have been tracking for over a decade, and unfortunately, I would say things aren't headed in a more biblical direction. Now, this survey was a joint effort by LifeWay Research, which is part of the Southern Baptist Convention and Ligonier Ministries, which was founded by Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul. And uh, the two organizations together have conducted this study every two years since 2014. While the questions are sometimes changed or reworded, it provides a good way to track the trends concerning what Americans believe. David, you mentioned evangelicalism is moving in an unbiblical direction. But it used to be that evangelicals were understood to be the most biblical in their beliefs. Maybe we should take a moment and talk about what evangelicalism is really supposed to mean. Well, in my research, I went to the website of the National Association of Evangelicals, and uh, they have a webpage that's titled, What is an Evangelical? And the opening paragraph says this, Evangelicals take the Bible seriously and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The term evangelical comes from the Greek word euangelion, meaning the good news or the gospel, and thus the evangelical faith focuses on the good news of salvation brought to sinners by Jesus Christ. And then they note four things as a summary of evangelical distinctives. One is a high regard for and obedience to the Bible as the ultimate authority. Another is a stress on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as making possible the redemption of humanity then the belief that uh, lives need to be transformed through a born-again experience and a lifelong process of discipleship. And the fourth one is the expression and demonstration of the gospel and missionary and social reform efforts. Then they also make the point that evangelicals would include believers in many churches and denominations, such as Reformed, Holiness, Anabaptist, Pentecostal, Charismatic, and other traditions. And uh, I would say that those other traditions today, as evangelicalism is defined, would include some Anglicans, Episcopalians, Roman Catholics, and and even Eastern Orthodox. But this would be a problem for most conservative evangelicals, because most of these groups are well outside of fundamentalism and fundamental theology. David, uh, I know you want to talk about the survey results, and I want to do that in a moment, but uh, you mentioned fundamentalism. Now, that's a term we don't hear very much anymore. Could you take a moment, give us some background on this term, fundamentalism? Sure. Well, first, there's a difference between fundamentalism as a movement and a series of articles called the Fundamentals that help define fundamental theology. So, for example, I'm a part of an organization, a fellowship called the IFCA, and that used to stand for the Independent Fundamental Churches of America. But now this fellowship has only kept the letters IFCA, but they aren't an acronym anymore, and it's known as IFCA International. And the reason for this is that fundamentalism has become associated with extreme legalism and hate groups, and even those who fly planes into buildings. So for many, it's now a negative concept and carries a lot of baggage. But that's different from the fundamentals. The fundamentals were a set of 90 essays published in the early 1900s 
to identify and explain the fundamentals of biblical Christianity. And these essays were largely a response to attacks on the Bible by uh, things like liberal Protestantism, cults that began in the 1800s, socialism, modernism, atheism, humanistic philosophy, evolution, and and so on. And the topics that they dealt with included uh, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible, and especially focusing on the person and work of Jesus Christ, uh, including his deity, his virgin birth, the miracles, the atonement, and his resurrection and return. So while I would say I hold to fundamental theology, and I know you would too, I personally generally identify as a conservative evangelical, and with the more recent changes in evangelicalism, I often say I'm a historically conservative evangelical. And a Bibleist as well, because you always bring to the table your Bible when we have these conversations. That was great information, David. Thank you so much. Well, let's now take some time to get to the results of this survey and how those compare with what evangelicalism was in the past. Well, let's start with the Word of God, because what someone believes about the Bible influences everything else. So in the survey, among all Americans who were surveyed, 48% either strongly or somewhat think that the Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths but isn't literally true, and that's up 7% since uh, these surveys began in 2014. Now, among evangelicals in that group, only 59% strongly agree agree that the Bible is literally true, which means that 40% don't, and that marks a staggering shift, Jimmy, just in our lifetimes, and explains, I would say, a lot of what we're seeing in the Church uh, in America today. Concerning Jesus' identity, some 53% of Americans think Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. Now, that's not surprising, but what is surprising is that a third of evangelicals either strongly or somewhat agree with this, that Jesus isn't God. Now, Jimmy, I don't think it's possible for someone to even be saved if he denies the deity of Christ, because Jesus can't be the Savior who died for our sins if he wasn't God in the flesh. And while 63% of Americans think that God accepts the worship of all religions, again, that's not surprising, but only 35% of evangelicals strongly believe this isn't true, meaning that they believe God accepts worship of all religions, even though Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So historically, evangelicals have believed that someone had to hear, understand, and believe the gospel to be saved. David, as you were discussing that last point there, it reminded me, and I'm sure our listeners must be aware, we actually, you and I and a couple of other guys, started the Alliance for Biblical Integrity over 10 years ago because of the issue of many evangelicals. Well, that's right, Jimmy, and it goes back to the summer of 2008 when uh, we were still missionaries with Word of Life in Hungary. That summer, the results of a much larger survey came out, uh, made up of over 30,000 churchgoers in the United States, about 9,000 of those who self-identified as evangelicals. And that survey confirmed what I'd been saying and thinking for years, and that was that many were evangelicals in name only. And what was happening in attitudes about missions and evangelism suggested that many thought that Jesus 
Jesus wasn't the only way of salvation. So back in 2008, 70% of all churchgoers combined believed there were many ways of salvation. Now, this is in contrast to uh, 50% of Mormons and 80% of Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that they are the ones who have the only truth for salvation, which historically is what evangelicals have believed, because we take the Bible seriously. But in that survey, only 36% of evangelicals believe there's one way of salvation. So that meant that the term evangelical was essentially meaningless even 12 years ago, and this has huge implications for missions and evangelism, which is something I'm concerned about as a veteran missionary. So back in 2008, that June, actually, I, I emailed you to see if you thought there was a need for a ministry dedicated to helping hold the line on historical conservative evangelicalism. And within a few weeks, we decided to form the Alliance for Biblical Integrity, which is an informal alliance of uh, like-minded ministries and believers who faithfully teach the Word of God and train others how to handle the Bible correctly. And I'm very excited about the fact that uh, you took over as executive director of that organization. By the way, David, give the website address for that organization so those listening today may be able to come and find out what we're all about. It's biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org. And I so appreciate your research on this particular topic this week. An exciting topic upcoming next week. Well, just as a preview, unless something else comes up, we're going to dive into QAnon. It should be an interesting discussion. A very interesting discussion. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to open the Bible, take all the reports from our broadcast partners, and take a look at the book and see where we are in God's plan and program for the end times. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage 
for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. We'll open the Bible, put together the reports from my broadcast partners, and see where we are as it relates to Bible prophecy. You know, in this broadcast, we brought my broadcast partners to the broadcast table to give us details behind the headlines of current events that are happening around our world. These reports are essential for all of us to be able to realize the urgency of the moment in which we are living today. If you missed, by the way, any of the reports from my broadcast partners, please go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Then on the right-hand column, if you'll scroll down, you'll find Prophecy Today Radio Network. And there you'll also find these reports from my broadcast partners available to you to listen to them at your convenience. And do me a great big favor, if you will. Please tell a member of your family or other friends so that they can be able to hear these reports as well. Give them the website, prophecytoday.com, then to PTRN. Right now, though, we're going to take these last moments of the broadcast, and I want to give you my prophetic perspectives on the reports from my guys. Ken Timmerman, who covers the geopolitical events happening in our world, reported on the activities on the 19th anniversary of 9-11. This is tangible evidence of the threat of Islamic warfare on the big Satan, America. Iran has said this last week that they can reach America with their nuclear weapons of mass destruction. They may do that, in fact, through a military satellite. And they could use EMP, electronic magnetic pulse, to destroy our electrical grid, and then 90% of the nation would die within the first year after that attack. That is serious business as we look at the future of America. David Dolan then gave us his Middle East news update. We focused on Israel's focus, which is actually going to be the White House in Washington and the signing of the peace treaty between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. This signing of another peace treaty is only evidence of what the Bible said would happen in the future. And in fact, on Friday afternoon, President Trump announced yet another treaty with an Arab nation that has agreed to recognize Israel and form some type of a relationship. That would be the Arab nation of Bahrain. You know, as I've said before, the more peace treaties, the better, because ultimately I've read the last chapter, and we know these peace treaties will fail. And then Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 comes into play when the Antichrist will step forward and say he can confirm, not sign a peace treaty, but confirm all the peace treaties on the table not working. 
Winky Madad helped us with insight into the Jewish feast days that will begin next weekend, including Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. This is a special time, and especially these fall feasts, for the Jewish people. In my conversation with Winky, we talked about the fruit mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 6 to 10, and we know at the time of Rosh Hashanah, there is a special emphasis with the fruit in the land of Israel. So when you stop to think about it, the fruit in the land, the Jews in the land, and the Jewish feast being observed by the Jewish people, giving us evidence of the glory of Almighty God. John Rood is the man who covers the European Union. He gave us an update, his report on China and the European Union making a joint statement that they can shape the world's future. Well, that's the truth if you stop to think about it. Both the EU and China will indeed shape the future. The European Union, infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire, Daniel chapter 7. And China, one of the kings of the East, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. That's Bible prophecy. So the EU and China shaping the future of this world. Steve Herzig, National Director of Friends of Israel, and from a Christian perspective, talked to us about the seven Jewish feasts, with a focus ultimately on the fall feast. And Steve mentioned that Jesus fulfilled the first four feasts, the spring feast. Jesus was crucified on Passover, buried on unleavened bread, and resurrected on first fruits with the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. To be consistent biblically, Jesus Christ will indeed fulfill the last three feasts, the fall feast, and on the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, the new year, in the future, Jesus Christ will come back to the earth. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31, where Jesus says to the angel, Blow a trumpet and call for a solemn assembly. That will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. On the day of Yom Kippur, he walks into the temple and takes away the iniquity of the Jewish people in one day. That's Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 9. And then five days later, on the Feast of Tabernacles, Zechariah chapter 14, we begin an annual celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles into eternity future. David James and I have our weekly conversation, and this week we talked about a survey on what evangelicalism believes today. I want to remind you, based upon that conversation, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul, in his swan song, says that the time shall come when men will turn away from sound doctrine. My dear friend, that Second Timothy 4 passage is describing today evidence that we are in those last days. Well, I've got to say, all of these reports help us to realize actually what is next. The next event, according to God's word and his plan for the future, is the rapture of the church. And that rapture, when Jesus calls us up into the air, does not have to wait for any certain day to take place, but it could happen at any time. 
and I mean any time, even today. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.